Open up your Bibles, please, to Mark. Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4. When I was a kid, apparently I did not hear very well. Anybody else struggle with that as a kid? Uh, I do remember hearing certain phrases from my parents like, you're not listening, or didn't you hear me, or are you deaf? And then, when I was in about 6th, 7th grade, an audiologist came to school. And that's one of those people, they put the headphones on your ears, and you're sitting in the chair, and she says, raise your arm when you hear it on the right or the left. And we waited a long time for me to raise my hand, especially on the left side. I was deaf. It was great to have some excuse at that point anyway. And um, especially in the higher frequencies. And by that time, uh, as a, a guy growing up on the farm, I had spent the equivalent of weeks on a tractor, especially looking over to my right, driving while my dad did uh, baling. We did custom baling, not only baling hay for ourselves, but baling for other people. And there was this loud muffler in my left ear for days and days. And so I am still partially deaf. And I struggle with constant ringing in my ears called tinnitus. And the reason is because of those things. Now, do you think that my physical hearing loss was a real reason that my mother would repeatedly tell me that I wasn't listening? Do you think that was it? Probably not. My mother also used this phrase, selective hearing. She said, you have selective hearing. I only heard what I wanted to hear. Now, what does she mean by that? Does it mean that I turn off my hearing like the mute on a remote control and people are just moving their lips and I don't hear anything? No, that's not it. Um... It might have been because of something going on down here. I was outright many times disregarding what she had to say. Now, to have selective hearing as it relates to your parents, that's pretty serious all by itself. But how serious is it when you have selective hearing as it relates to the word of God? That's pretty serious. Our text this morning is called very often the parable of the sower. But it's really, it might be better named the parable of the hearers. We want to be, this is what this series is about, fifth sermon in the series on on what it means to follow Jesus We want to be faithful followers of Jesus. And in order to get there, we need to especially learn to hear, hear the gospel. It makes all the difference. And so we're going to read this together and learn how we can better listen, better hear 
better be changed into the likeness of Jesus. Let's read it together. Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd that gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat and sat in it out on the lake while all the people were along the shore at the water's edge. He taught them many things by parables and in his teaching said, Listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants, so they did not bear grain. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew, and produced a crop, multiplying 30, 60, or even a 100 times. And then Jesus said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, the twelve and the others around him asked him about the parables. He told them, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to those on the outside, everything is said in parables. So that we may be ever seeing, but never perceiving, and ever hearing, but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. Then Jesus said to them, don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? The farmer sows the word. Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Others, like seed sown on rocky places, hear the word and at once received it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Still others, like seed sown among thorns, hear the word. But the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Others, like seed sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop. Thirty, sixty, or even a hundred times what was sown. So, if you go back to verse 14, um, very simply, the seed is the word of God, or particularly the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ. And then you look at the parable itself, in verses 3 through 9, it begins and it ends with the same Greek word for hearing. In verse 3, it says right at the start, Jesus says, listen, listen. In verse 9, he ends by saying, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And then if you turn to Jesus' explanation of the parable in verses 14 through 20, there are all kinds of hearers, but the key difference is in verse 20, the ones who produce an amazing crop of up to a hundred times what is sown is that they hear the word, they accept it, and they produce a crop. Now that's where I want to be. That's where you and I want to be. We are all looking for 
meaning and significance. We're looking for substance. We're looking for a life that's full of joy, a joy that comes from bearing fruit that produces a crop and ultimately brings in a harvest. We can get real significance and joy out of that. That's where it's at. And we all know every day that we come short of that. We know we're not where we should be. And so Jesus teaches us how to dramatically change our life. We can follow Jesus. We can become like Jesus. And it all begins with this seed. It all depends on humbly hearing and accepting this seed. So what we're going to do is see three ways that this seed works to change us. And the first way that this gospel seed works to change us is through its power. Throughout scripture, you're going to see over and over that God's word is power. God says, let there be light and there is light. Let there be creatures upon the earth and there are creatures upon the earth. And he says, it is good. There's this great creative power, but there's also in God's word a recreative power. God is redeeming and recreating the heavens and the earth through his word. It is his ordained means to bring it about. And so, for example, James 1 verse 18 says he chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. The word is the power that brings this new birth and a new creation in us. First Peter as well, he says, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. That's the recreative power of the word of God for us today. Now, we know that the Word of God is words. We know it is information. It is stories. But the Word is much more than information. The Word of God, the Gospel, is power. It's power. When the seed is planted in the ground, there is this massive power in this tiny seed. And you can plant whatever else you have around the house, uh, outside, inside of the house. You can take a glass, you can take a hammer, you can take uh, uh, a stone, whatever it is. And it doesn't matter how much you fertilize it or water it, nothing's going to happen. But when the seed of God is planted... In you, there is a power that takes you from death and into this vibrant spiritual life. And you begin to see things like you never saw them before. And so you see the holiness of God. And you see his greatness. You see his goodness. And you see the love of the Father for you. You see the hope of the resurrection for you. And there are all kinds of people who believe in God, even a God of power and goodness. But then when some kind of trouble comes their way, trouble beats them down a bit. Suddenly, God doesn't mean so much to them. And so there's a panic. 
On the other hand, when the gospel seed sprouts up with power in you, there is no panic. So, for example, a few weeks ago, I was gathered in a meeting in a circle with uh, a number of my peers, about 10 of them, 11 of them, all in a circle. And one man, all of a sudden, in the hearing of everybody, blindsided me beat me down with some criticism in front of the entire group. And right at that moment, this is what I find out about myself. Is my understanding of God and the gospel merely a matter of information and theoretical belief, or do I really know and trust in my Father's love for and delight in me? And is God's approval, his accolades, and delight in me more real to me than the criticism? And is my relationship with Jesus sweet enough and real enough to trump all of the ugly words and actions that will come my way? See, if God and his love and holiness and beauty are real to you, You can handle anything. Really. You remember the picture of Isaiah that's given to us in chapter 6. Isaiah 6. Amazing vision of the holiness of God. And uh, Isaiah sees God in the temple. And uh, years ago I figured out that the temple would have been about the size of the sanctuary. And the robe of God fills the entire temple and the seraphs are calling out, holy, holy, holy to the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. The doorposts, these massive doors in this massive temple, uh, the thresholds are just shaking. It's all filled with smoke and Isaiah, at that point in time, is the most righteous, upright prophet in the land. He has the task of declaring God's judgment on the people. And at that very moment, in the presence of God, he declares, I am ruined. I disintegrate before God's holiness. But then at the same time, God provides a live coal that touches his lips. And he is declared... His guilt is, it is declared that his guilt is taken away and his sin is atoned for. And it is at that response to the encounter, this encounter with the living God that he says, here am I, send me. And so up to that point, Isaiah certainly knew about God, but now he knew God. And there is this humility that comes from seeing some of the depth of his sin and his guilt. And there is at the same time a boldness and a confidence that comes from seeing that his sin has been wiped away through the grace and the mercy of God. That's the life and the power of the gospel at work. Now, If you look back to our text in Mark chapter 4, verse 1, Jesus is addressing a large crowd. 
Now, that would have included Pharisees, scribes, and the, the crowds uh, generally. And these are those who are the shallow soil, where there's no root. There is a turning away in the face of any kind of trouble or resistance. And the weakness of religion at that point is exposed. There's no staying power for those who are merely religious. Throughout the book of Mark, Jesus is constantly in conflict with those who claim their religion, like the scribes and the Pharisees. And so, and one way to think about religion in those days and still today is this, I obey and do good, therefore God accepts me and now owes me. On the other hand, the gospel says, God accepts me through the radical grace of Jesus, therefore I want to obey. And those are two very, very different things. Religion, what it does is it changes you mechanically and externally. And so you're busy with all kinds of things and you're constantly doing and you're learning more and you're going through the motions. You're trying hard. You're working hard. And the gospel has power because it changes you organically from the inside out like a bulb that turns into a tulip. And so you know that the gospel is working in you when you can lay aside your crazy busyness, and you are instead getting wiser and richer and deeper. You're reveling in a real relationship with God. And you see the glory of his patient, gentle love, his perfect approval for you. And so you're strong and you're tough. And at the same time, you're sensitive, you're confident, you're bold. And even though you're bold, you are also humble and you're less focused on yourself. You're generous and you are genuinely loving people who are different, who are difficult. If that kind of thing is happening in you, that's a sign of the power of the word of God working in you. Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. It doesn't say the gospel has the power. Or it doesn't say the gospel will result in power. It says the gospel, what? Is power. It is the power of God. It is the power of God in verbal form. And so you need to ask yourself, do I have that power working in me? Is the gospel more than information for me? So that's the first way that we see that the gospel works to change us. It's a power. And and now we see that it is also a power that transforms with depth. The gospel releases the life of God into you in a way that seed does. And what you see in the parable is that seed releases its power and bears fruit when it has the opportunity to go deep enough and to take root. And so we see the gospel releases its power when it goes deep. You'll notice that the other three types of soil or ground or whatever, 
do not allow any kind of depth and do not produce any kind of growth. The first kind of soil, if you look at the parable, the seed doesn't go in at all. The second type of soil, the seed doesn't go deep enough. And in the third type of soil, it goes a bit deeper, but it's at the same level of weeds and thorns, and ultimately it dies. And if you consider the metaphor of the sowing of the seeds, it is an amazingly gentle process. There's a simple spreading of the tiny seed across the ground. So that means there's no axe, there's no uh, shovel required, just this simple working in of the seed. And so what we see here is that this is also not a passive wait for God to do his thing process. The gospel does not transform you without you. Okay? You don't simply sit back and wait for God to come on down and to change your life. There's a key phrase at the end of Jesus' explanation in verse 20. It says that this good soil is the soil that hears the word, accepts it, and produces a crop. Now, when you consider the Greek words that are used to describe the listening to the word, the first three types of soil use a word that implies a quick, superficial hearing. It goes in one ear, out the other, and it's over. But then with the good soil, there's a fourth kind of hearing, and there is a change in the tense so that it's present tense, And so the idea here is of a continual, ongoing hearing. It's one of the reasons you're here this morning. There is this to be this ongoing hearing. And so what we see is this. We become good soil that produces a crop when we are actively and constantly listening, thinking about, reflecting, discussing, and applying the gospel over and over again. We're working gospel seed down into our hearts and into our minds. And so, let me give you a couple of examples of that. First of all, out of Galatians. In the book of Galatians, Paul is all wound up, dispenses with the usual salutations in the letter. He's angry over some misunderstanding that's going on over the gospel. And one of the objects of his anger is Peter. Peter, uh, or Paul, confronts Peter because he was refusing to sit down and eat with Gentiles. Or non-Jewish believers. And Peter um, refused to eat with these people because it was deeply ingrained in him that as a Jew, he would view the Gentiles as unclean. And so they are an unclean race. They need to be separated from us. And so Paul confronts Peter... And he could have said, listen, Peter, 
racism is against God's will, you need to get your act together. Right? He doesn't do that. Instead, Paul tells Peter, Galatians 2 verse 14, he says, you're not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. You're not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. So what's the truth of the gospel? The truth of the gospel is that you are saved by sheer grace. There's nothing superior or great about you. In fact, you are as much of a sinful mess as anybody else. And yet God extended his mercy to you through the death of his son for you. And so, Peter, there is nothing superior about you over anyone else. And God has perfectly loved and accepted you. You don't need to puff yourself up and show yourself to be better than anyone else. You don't need to separate yourself from anyone. Peter needs to let the truth of the gospel work down into his heart and mind so that he's guided by love and grace rather than pride and prejudice. Let me give you a personal example. On Friday, I messed up. Messed up in my relationship with my wife. We struggled through a bit of a fight. And earlier in the day, we had decided that we would leave at 4.15, run a few errands, and then go out for dinner together. Now, as you might expect, Ruth spends much of her life, and she reminded me of this, waiting for me. Can you, can you imagine that? My wife waits for me a lot, right? So, um, I finished my work on time, And I'm feeling pretty righteous because I stood ready at the door a few minutes before we agreed to leave. But this time, the tables turned a bit. Ruth wanted to finish the last few pages of a book that she was really into at this point. And then she, in my mind anyway, kind of floated around a bit more. You know, just doing a few things. And so I'm getting irritated. I'm getting angry. I am thinking this woman is rude to me. How could she make me wait this time? And then rather than simply forgiving this minor offense or recognizing that I have this coming and much more, I decided I'm going to make Ruth pay with the old tried-and-true, passive-aggressive, silent treatment. So, we got into the car and just traveled down the road with no conversation. Now, my heart's inclination did not serve us well on that day. It turned into a mess. And it all started with my sense of righteousness, my pride that says, I don't deserve this kind of treatment. And there's this also this inability to be patient and to forgive quickly. And so what Paul would say to me is, 
you're not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. So in other words, this is what we see for all of us. Every day, we need to think about and press the gospel seed into the roots of our heart and mind so that we act out of gospel instinct. Gospel instinct with the same love and grace that we see in Jesus for us every day. It needs to become a part of us. Do you see that? So... We've seen that we should hear and accept the gospel because it is a power that transforms with depth. Finally, we need to see that the gospel seed is a power through weakness. If you've planted flowers or vegetables in a garden, you know that many of the seeds are these tiny, weak things. And if you drop a seed, you're likely not even going to find it again. And so why would Jesus use this weak seed as a metaphor for the gospel? If you go back to chapter 4 again, verse 1, you see that Jesus is teaching this large crowd. And he's working, really, to thin the crowd. Jesus is developing a filter that will keep some people back where they belong. If you look at verses 11 and 12, it looks like Jesus... He's explaining that he's telling parables so that some don't get it and they just go away. But the reality is that Jesus is surrounded by people who are following him for what they can get out of Jesus. They don't want Jesus or his message. Those who really love Jesus and care to understand his message... They're going to ask. And there are very few who really, do, who really do come back and ask. Those who really understand, really love Jesus and care to understand his message will come back. And thus, very few readily do come to understand the power of the gospel through weakness. Now, what does that power through weakness look like? Many years ago, there was a minister in Italy. And there he saw a grave of a man who had died centuries before who was an unbeliever. And completely, completely against Christianity, but at the same time, he was a little afraid of it uh, as well. And so the man had directed that this huge stone slab be put over his grave so that he would not have to be raised from the dead in case there is a resurrection from the dead. And so he had, as well, insignias put onto the slab saying, I don't want to be raised from the dead. I don't believe in it. That'll help, won't it? Well, apparently, when he was buried, an acorn must have fallen into the grave. And so a hundred years later, an acorn had grown up through the grave and split that slab 
And now there was this tall, towering oak tree. And the minister looked at it and he said, if an acorn, which has the power of biological life in it, can split a slab of that magnitude, what can the acorn of God's resurrection power do in a person's life? What can God's gospel power do in a person's life? And here's why you can see uh, why Jesus would portray the gospel as a weak seed. When you look at this parable in its context, And in a bit more detail, you could say that the first soil is the Pharisees and the religious leaders. They just outright rejected him. The second soil is the crowds. And they're happy with him, but as long as he's doing miracles and kind of entertaining them. The third soil is his family. They are very upset, and you can see this in the text just before, leading up to chapter 4. They're upset with him because he is bringing shame on them because of all the crazy things he's doing. In other words, the parable of the soils is not just a parable of how people respond to the word, but how they respond to Jesus. And Jesus did not come as this massive hammer, or as a sword, or as this great fire. Jesus came not to be strong, but to be weak and to die. Because seeds only release their power if they fall into the ground and die. If Jesus had come as a sword, or as a hammer, or as a fire... We'd all be toast. Instead, Jesus came as the ultimate seed. He explained in John chapter 12, 24, he says, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, on the night before Jesus was to hang on the cross and face infinite suffering under our sin, and in the absence of his father, the abandonment of his father, the prospect of that horror of going to the cross was so much that blood squeezed out through his pores. And he begged his father, he says, if there's any other way that we can do this, Please let it be. And his father said, in a sense, my life cannot be released into our people unless you become a seed that dies and goes into the ground. And so Jesus did it. And he became a weak seed that could raise us up with life to bear fruit and to bring in a harvest. Amen? He did that. And so then we see how the power of the word is the weakness of the Lord. 
And that's the power that changes us when we see the beauty of his weakness and his humility and his sacrifice for us. That changes us. When you and I have this gospel seed deep in our hearts, we can respond with our own weakness rather than strength. And so when I'm criticized, I don't need to puff out my chest and defend myself. Jesus suffered under my sin and shame so that I could be declared righteous and receive the honor of being God's adopted son. Why should I depend on the approval and the honor of others? Every day, Jesus patiently bends down to serve me, to love me, to forgive me again. And again and again. And his weakness for me changes me at the very root. William Cooper said this. He wrote this. He said, to see the law by Christ fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. His weakness for me changes me at the root so that I can act with love and grace. The same love and grace that I see in him every day. And the end of the story, if you look at verse 20, it is a story of great triumph. There is this great yield up to a hundredfold which would only happen if something supernatural is going on. It's the power of the gospel. And it doesn't matter what kind of marble slab is over your heart, no matter what kind of addiction or fear or uh, poor self-image you have going on, the gospel is the power to crack it and roll it off for a resurrection of your life. And no matter what, has, what anyone has done to you or how messed you up you are, there is a power for healing and for love and for joy. That's the power of his weakness for you. Let's pray together.